Good to see you guys. Yeah, my name's Dave Werns. I'm the Director of Missions and Mobilization here at Grace Fellowship, and I'll just do a shameless plug for Missions Monday and say that we have a mysterious couple of people who are on the mission field that are attending Missions Monday next week. It's a rare appearance of people who I actually can't say who they are, and that's part of why we do Missions Monday. We support folks that are risking their lives and the lives of their friends for the sake of the gospel. And so if you want to learn more, Register today. We'll feed you something. You won't die. Your kids will be watched over, and we will get to glorify God and hear more about what he's doing around the world with our partners. So today, we're jumping into the book of Jonah. We've been there for a little while, but today's a big day. We're going to get into chapter 2. Thanks for hanging in there. We're almost, we're halfway through, right? And, and today we get the big fish appearance, right? It finally makes its, its big fish show, down, show up. And with it comes a whole host of reasonable questions, right? What kind of a fish, what, what kind of an animal could swallow a man whole and, and he stays alive for three days and three? How does Jonah breathe underwater? Maybe God just let him die and then resurrected him. Could it just be a, a poetic metaphor, right? He's actually in a boat, but it's carved like a fish. I get it, all right? We all wonder things, and and I do believe that there are great, solid answers to all of these questions. And and trust me, I appreciate that some people and groups and and, uh, organizations want to find real, practical, biological, scientific answers to how Jonah 2 happened, what was going on. But Frankly, I think the best use of our time today is to focus on the main character. Right? It's not Jonah, certainly not some oversized aquatic animal, right? The main character here is God. Right? God is the main character in Jonah. And so I think it's worth reminding everybody that the best use of our time when we come to the scriptures. He's asked, what exactly is God doing here? What is he up to? So today we're going to push past just a little bit, just a little bit past the extraordinary means that God uses to save Jonah. Instead, get into the heart, what is God doing? I think it's also worth noting before we get too far that that Jonah chapter 2 might take up about a quarter of the the entirety of the book of Jonah, right? But it, it... does almost nothing to move the plot forward. If you've been reading ahead, you might have felt that a little bit. It's, it's, it's almost as if you could jump straight from, from Jonah 1.17, right? The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And then fast forward all the way to, to chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it, it vomited Jonah onto dry land. You wouldn't miss a beat, right? You, the story continues. And so, again, it begs the question, what is God doing? Why would he use this much real estate on a finite book for a prayer? And as with much of the Bible, I suspect that God is much less interested in creating a a captivating narrative, right? A fascinating story. 
He's much more interested in revealing something about the heart. Specifically, Jonah's heart in this case. But in general, our hearts. And more importantly, his heart. So let's ask for his help today. Would you join me in praying for his help in understanding our heart and his through the lens of Jonah's heart? Father God, we are, we are so grateful for the word that you've given us, for the stories and narratives of the men and women that you've used throughout history. God, we love that you want us to know you. Would you help us today to know you? Would you open our eyes? Would you, would you clarify our minds, soften our hearts to know what are you like as we explore the prophet that you've called? And would you stir in our hearts desire, God, to be like you. We ask this for your fame and our good. Amen. All right, so let's dive in, right? Forgive me the pun. How can you, how can you read Jonah and not make puns, really? Come on. Follow along as we're going to read Jonah chapter 2 in its entirety. It's pretty short, and I read quickly, so hang in there. Actually, let's start in in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me in all your waves, and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to our Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Amen. (laughs) It's a vivid image. Lots of poetic language there. I don't want to get too distracted by that because I think there's something deeper. I think there's more going on in Jonah's prayer than just his gratitude for not dying. So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and particularly if you've been attending here at Grace Fellowship, you've probably encountered a word, sanctification. That's something that we do talk about pretty regularly here. But, But for those of you who may not be familiar with sanctification... It's merely a word to describe a process. Think about something like digestion or photosynthesis, those of you that uh, have middle school kids. Except instead of converting one uh, one substance into something else, like food gets transferred into energy or or light gets gets converted into sugar uh, or oxygen, in the process of sanctification, God's people change. Right? It's God that changes his people's hearts 
through time and circumstances until they think and feel and act just like Jesus. And it would be fantastic if this process was something like a weekend with Marie Kondo, right? Where we just, we kind of go through our lives and, and magically tidy up a little bit. Right? You think of it, like, does, this, does this terrible sinful habit spark joy? Hmm, no. Right, does this broken relationship sparking joy in my life right now? No. Does this overwhelming feeling of anxiety or fear or anger, you fill in the blank, am I sparked with joy? No. Put it aside. <sighs> and don't we just feel better now? Right? We can go on with our simplified lives. If that is your testimony, praise God. And congratulations. It's not mine. It certainly wasn't Jonah's. Okay, for most of us, sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, it is a long, winding, often painfully slow process. Where when you look around, sometimes it feels like you've made absolutely no progress at all. Or worse, you're moving backwards. Folks, our only hope in the success of this process Right? It's not sunlight, it's not oxygen, it's not nutrition. It's the free and unmerited favor of our God. But just like photosynthesis requires the proper amounts of light and, uh, and carbon dioxide and water and minerals in order to produce a massive tree, so our process of sanctification is only possible because of God's unlimited power being guided by his infinite kindness and, and unfailing love, focused to achieve the very best outcome for his undeserving people. I'll say that one more time. Right? Sanctification, the process of sanctification is only possible because of God's unlimited power combined with his unfailing kindness and love focused for the very best outcome of undeserving people like me, like all of you. Our only hope in this life and the next is God's grace. And God in his wisdom has organized the universe so that his grace Right, his kindness and power at work on behalf of the undeserving. Right, his grace is both the primary means of that process, but it's also the ultimate end of that process. Our messy sanctification process right, of heart change, it functions as the, the universal, multidimensional showroom of God's flawless qualities the crown jewel of which is his grace. We'll be studying this flawless gem for eons. We'll be worshiping and celebrating it for centuries. And so while our individual process right, might be uncomfortable, discouraging, even overwhelming at times, I think we can get real practical hope from our passage today in Jonah 2. God's grace can give us hope 
even when our lives feel like complete and utter messes. That's point number one. God sees you in your mess. God sees you in your mess. Let's just take stock of Jonah's situation real quick. Right? On the physical level, Jonah's a man far from home. He's surrounded by strangers. He's in a boat in the the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He's in the middle of a life-threatening squall. Right? And he's about to die because his, his sailor companions just heaved him overboard. His spiritual level, it's not much better. Okay, he's in open rebellion against the God of the universe. He's living in unrepented sin, right? Either either indifference at best or hatred at worst. And he's about to be judged by that almighty God because, again, the sailors just heaved him overboard. Right? On an emotional level, things are dark, (laughs) He's angry, he's scared, he's in the middle of a a personal identity crisis. We're not sure if Jonah should feel self-righteous and arrogant because he's he's sticking to his convictions as a Jew, or if he should feel complete shame and an utter failure because he's abandoned his one and only job as a prophet of God. He's conflicted, he's confused, and on top of it, his adrenaline's spiking because yet again, the dude just got thrown overboard, okay? He's in the middle of the ocean. And I think... As Jonah hits the water, nobody would argue this man's life is an utter mess. No pieces are where they should be. Everything's out of order and upside down. And yet even here, God saw him. Jonah 1, 17 says, God appointed a fish. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't, it wasn't just a, a fun coincidence that there happened to be a big fish. God appointed a fish. It swallowed Jonah and saved his life. That distress that Jonah talks about in, in chapter 2, verse 1, that, or chapter 2, verse 2, that distress is not the fish. The fish is not distressing. Dying in an identity crisis in the middle of the ocean, that's, a, that's distress. Okay, that's, that's the distress. The fish is salvation. But God didn't have to save him. Fish or no. God owes him nothing at this point. And frankly, if any one of us was writing this story, it would have a very different ending. And it would probably stop somewhere around chapter 1. We might keep verse 15. So the sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. We'd probably keep that. He deserved less or more, but but that's what he'll get. We'd probably keep verse 15. We like evangelism. So, so they, they threw him into the sea. Verse 16, the men feared God exceedingly. That's a positive outcome. We'll take that. We'll keep it. They offered sacrifices, made vows. Verse 17, I think we'll probably adjust that, right? Instead of appointing a fish, well, how about God appointed a better prophet? And that prophet obeyed and went to Nineveh. And all of us learned to obey God and not run away. Amen. Done. That's how, that's how we tend to treat people, though. Especially people that, that are feeling the weight right, of either sinful choices that they've made or, or the sinful choices made against them or just living in a sin-cursed world. Feeling the strain of living a messy life. We don't like to see those people. There's a reason we don't like to make eye contact with the homeless couple at the stoplight. 
Right? There's a reason we look away from the single parent that's having a toddler melting down at Kroger. Or a family with a teenager melting down in the basement. Or a spouse that's having a meltdown in the driveway. Right? We don't like to look at that. Because their mess reflects my mess. I don't know about you, but I've worked pretty darn hard to hide that. Until we can't. Until our mess spills out into the lives of the people around us. And then we become the people nobody likes to see. Thankfully, our God is not like us. Messes don't make him uncomfortable. He doesn't look away. He sees people. He sees people in their mess, especially in their mess. Genesis chapter 16. We don't have time to go there today, but it's a story of an Egyptian woman named Hagar. She was a slave, and she was feeling the weight. Sinful choices in a sin-cursed world. And she had an encounter with God and declared him to be el Roi, the God who sees me. That's the only time that name is mentioned in the Bible, but that characteristic, that quality of seeing people, it's all throughout the scriptures. I would highly recommend you looking at her story, but today, instead, I think we're going to look at a similar story In Luke chapter 15, it's a a quick story that Jesus tells. Keep a finger in Jonah 2. We're going to flip over to Luke 15. We'll be in both places. It's a short story, but I think it illustrates the same kinds of principles that Hagar was experiencing back in Genesis. Luke chapter 15. We'll start in verse 11. Jesus is telling a story, and he said, There was a man that had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. So the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion, and he ran to him and embraced him, and he kissed him. 
Folks, there are a surprising number of parallels between this story and Jonah. Right, right down to the, the plan that the runaway has. Oh, I, I know how to make it right. right I, think, I think Tim Keller does a great job exploring most of those. Uh, in his book, Rediscovering Jonah, I highly recommend it. But for now, I think it's enough for us to recognize that when Jesus thinks about God seeing people, it's not merely the passive observation of a disinterested bystander. When God sees people, it's not the judgmental glare of an angry boss. It's not even the critical appraisal of a disappointed teacher. When God sees people, it's more like this dad, right? A loving father who misses his child and spends time scanning the horizon until he recognizes the silhouette of his beloved son a long way off. I know that there are some folks here today who feel a long way off from God. Maybe you're like Jonah. Maybe the combination of your circumstances and your choices are just overwhelming. It's too much to deal with. You feel like the world's going to be a better place just moving on without you. Friend, God sees you. a long way off. And he loves you. His grace is for you too. Now we know that God's power and his kindness were at work on Jonah's behalf. Right? Because God sent a great fish. He appointed a fish to save his life when Jonah didn't deserve it. But we know that God's power and kindness are work on our behalf too. Not because God appointed a fish. He appointed his son to come and save us. It's in your outline, but just follow along. Listen, listen as I read to you Romans 5. Close your eyes if you have to. This is for you. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time. The Holman translation says, at the appointed moment. At the appointed moment, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love own love for us, for you. Like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still a long way off, at the appointed moment, Christ died for us. He saw you. In all of your mess. And he didn't look away. 
In fact, he's not afraid to get down into the mess with you. That's the second way that grace can give us hope in our messy lives today. God meets you in your mess. Turn back to Jonah 2. Turn back to Jonah 2. God meets you in your mess. There's no doubt that Jonah's time inside the fish, the three days, the three nights, that was unpleasant at best. But it was necessary. It was necessary for God to strip away everything that Jonah had built his life on so that he and Jonah could meet heart to heart. They'd already met face to face, totally unfazed. It's not until Jonah is in a fish and there's nothing left to prop himself up that he and God finally have a heart to heart. Corrie ten Boom is a, a Dutch Christian during World War II. She, she and her family helped to hide Jews during the Holocaust. They were eventually arrested. They were put into concentration camps. She was the only one that survived. And she wrote a book, The Hiding Place. It's a, it's a powerful story about God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering, about being faithful in the midst of persecution. It's also an insightful commentary on the role that hardships play in our understanding of God's grace. One of the conclusions that she made after her time in the prison camp was that you may never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Folks, Jonah had nothing left in the fish. He's barely a man. But that's where God meets him. Jonah chapter 2, verse 5 says, The waters had closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains. I went down into a land whose bars closed over me forever. This is a man with no hope. Yet, God. Nothing is left for Jonah but God. And it's God who brought up his life from the pit. And it's still Jonah's God doing it. Oh Lord, my God. See, Jonah didn't wait. Sorry, God didn't wait for Jonah to turn his life around before he encountered him. He didn't give Jonah a lecture about how rough other people have it, hand him a straw and say, suck it up, son. He didn't send him an article that he saw on Facebook about how wise decisions keep you from being swallowed by fish. (laughs) Helpful as that is. Instead, God goes to Jonah. He goes to Jonah where he is in all of his mess at his worst moment. Lowest moment. Literally the lowest moment of his life. And he gently starts the process of restoring him. 
Friends, if we're not careful, we can easily overlook how unusual it is for God to encounter Jonah like this. God's built up a reputation for saving people in unusual ways. And so I think some people who have read the Bible many times, or or at least more than once, might, might get comfortable with the idea that this is just what God does. Friends, it is not just what God does. At this point in history, there are literally hundreds of rules and processes that dictate who can and cannot meet with God. We have very specific times, intricate rituals, accessories, lineages, all of which have to be prepared in order for a person to even survive an encounter with God. Jonah 1.1 isn't particularly shocking. That makes sense. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. In Jonah 1.1, he's God's man. He's a a successful prophet who's always done what God wanted. Those are the kinds of people that God wants to hang out with. Of course he's meeting with Jonah in chapter 1. But it's a very different Jonah in chapter 2. None of what he had before is relevant. And it's only by God's power and his kindness and his patience, and his enduring love that God can meet with a person like Jonah. Again, I think Jesus' story, right, back in Luke 15, I think that could help us understand that expression of grace as well. You can turn back there if you want. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Luke Luke 15, verse 14. Remember, this is a son that has spent everything. Everything from his inheritance is gone. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and, and he began to be in need. So he went out, hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe, Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. Father doesn't even listen to the speech. Just picture. Just picture for yourself. Imagine what this young man looks like as he's walking back home. He's rehearsing his speech, he's starving. He's smelly. He's beat up from a hard life, bad choices, a long journey. He is a physical, emotional, spiritual mess. And his father ran to him. He grabs him in a hug. He kisses his face. 
He starts shouting to the servants, immediately start restoring my son's life. Now, each of these items that, that the dad shouts for, they have huge cultural significance. But suffice to say, that father is not going to let anything come between him and his son now that he's home. Or he doesn't wait for the robe to show up before he hugs him. He doesn't demand that the son washes his face before he kisses him. Friends, Jonah 2 says that God brought up Jonah's life from the pit. Jonah didn't start swimming. God brought him up, which means God was there with him in it. So what about us? What about those of us that feel like our life has gone down into a pit and the bars are closing over our head forever? Can we have the same hope that Jonah does? Does that apply to us? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're not familiar with Ephesians, if you don't read Ephesians regularly, friends, you're missing out on a lot of hope. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us and the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Folks, God saw you a long way off. He says, before the creation of the world, in verse 4. And God meets us in our messes. He adopted us in Christ for his pleasure. By his will, not because we earned it. Not because we deserve it. But folks, it gets better than that. He doesn't stop there. God's grace towards us, his, his power and his kindness... Focused on our great good means that he will stay with us throughout the entirety of our mess. Turn back to Jonah 2. Sorry, I keep you bouncing around. Jonah chapter 2. Probably the most remarkable thing about Jonah 2 is not the fish, to me anyway. <laughs> it's not the fact that God saved people. Again, he has a long history of saving people. The craziest thing about Jonah chapter 2, where we stand right now, Jonah still hasn't repented. The man has not even begun to turn around. Nowhere in this prayer does he confess any sin. Does he ask for any mercy? Does he acknowledge the need for forgiveness? He's never even acknowledged the fact that he said or did anything wrong. He's quoting a lot of scripture here. 
He's pulling from half a dozen psalms at least. And he is deliberately excluding the worship, the praise, and the repentance from all of them. The man is poignantly not repented. It's even a stretch to say that he's thankful for God saving his life. He does say he will give thanks whenever he gets back to the temple. It's exactly like that son in Jesus' story concocts a plan of how he's going to make it right again. And God justly ignores both. Throughout this psalm, Jonah's just stating facts. I called out to God and he answered. Fact. He cast me into the deep. Fact. He brought me out of the deep. Fact. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Fact. No heart change. Nothing about Jonah's countenance or his vocabulary would say that he is turning back to God. And God still hasn't left him. Let that sink in for a second. Jonah might not be moving his feet, but he is still on the run. And God hasn't left him. I know a little bit about what that feels like. In the the years following my initial decision to follow Christ was riddled with selfishness, pride, fear. For well over a decade, I was overwhelmed with discouragement, doubt, shame. I would have wild swings between deep depression or, or self-righteous arrogance depending on how well I was managing my sin that week. Eventually, suicidal thoughts became quite normal. It's just an everyday occurrence. In short, (laughs) my life was a mess. (laughs) And God never left me. He still hasn't left me. These are no longer defining my life, but I have weeks. Brothers, sisters, hear me. God will never, never, never leave you. Follow along as I read Romans 8. It's in your outline. What then shall we say to these things? This mess. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right 
hand of God who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? In from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am sure, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers, sisters, you cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Such is the grace of God. Such is his power with his kindness and love. At work on those of us who do not deserve it. God is with us in our mess. At this point, I do want to take a slight sidestep. I think there are several reactions that we can have to that kind, <laughs> that kind of love. To the news that God gives grace to an unrepented Jonah. I think it's worth taking just a little bit of time to mention how those reactions play out. See, both of these reactions understand the mechanics of grace. But they miss the heart. The first one, the first possible reaction to, to hearing God's grace on Jonah might be frustration, perhaps even annoyance. It seems like God is giving Jonah a free pass to say or do whatever he wants, no consequences. It looks a little bit like God is ignoring Jonah's blatant, grievous sin. And we know that's not possible, right? God can't ignore sin. He can't sweep sin under the rug. He's just. So if that's your initial reaction, I just want to gently remind you, we're only halfway through Jonah's story. I think there is evidence for Jonah's genuine faith. Just not here. Not yet. So hang in there. Lord willing, we'll wrap it up eventually. God does only promise to sanctify his people. Secondly, I would like to caution you, if that's your, if that's your gut response, I'm a little annoyed. I'd like to caution you that we're also only halfway through Jesus' story in Luke 15. We've only met one of the sons so far. So maybe as you're processing God's grace this week, go ahead and finish up that parable in Luke 15. 
See what God says about the second son. Again, Lord willing, we'll finish both stories in the coming weeks, so we'll have time to process. Now, that second possible reaction, right, that understands the mechanics of grace, but, but maybe not the heart. Maybe some of you heard the good news that God sees you in your mess, that he's, he's with you in your mess, that he stays with you in your mess. And you breathed hmm, a sigh of relief. Because that means that you get to snuggle in and get comfortable in your mess. Friends, you are missing the part where we said this is a process. God's grace to you right now is for your sanctification. It's a journey, not the destination. Your mess right now is a means, not the end. So I would caution you again. (laughs) Let's finish the story. But we need to do it through the lens of grace. So we bring it to the final point. The final point, which is really more of a foreshadowing. The last point, we'll get to in the last two chapters of grace in more detail. But God not only sees you in your mess. He not only meets you in your mess. He not only stays with you through, throughout your mess, but thankfully, he has no intention of leaving you in that mess. By Jonah 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out up onto dry land. Friends, I, I don't know what mess you're in today. Right? It, it may be your own sinful choices. It might be people's sins against you. We're just living in, in a sin-cursed, broken world. Probably all of those combined to some degree. But the fact that Jonah survived the storm, and he survived the fish, and he crawled smelly, messy, starving, out onto dry land, alive, means that God isn't done with him yet. And the fact that you're sitting here today, right, Florence, online, Fort Thomas, Independence, hearing my voice, messy but alive, means that God isn't done with you yet either. So I'm going to leave you with a prayer from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul says, every time that I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. For you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it till now. And I am certain, I am certain that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished. On the day when Christ Jesus returns. God began that good work by his grace. God is continuing that good work by his grace. And he will finish that good work through his omnipotent kindness. On behalf of those who do not deserve it. 
there'll be an end and it'll be glorious. In the meantime, let me pray for us. And then we'll sing. Father God, we are so grateful that your power and your kindness and your love vastly exceeds the depth of the pit that we are in. Our hearts, God, we need a surgeon, like we sang this morning. Our soul needs a friend, and so we run to you and your grace is our only hope. Would you bless my friends this morning with your grace? Amen.